Hello, I'm Steph. And I'm Al. And this is The Source, a podcast from Chicken and Chips Casting. We're bringing you conversations with people we love, talking about things we love and hate or feel strong feelings about. And it's all no BS. This episode of The Source is brought to you by We Audition. We are big fans of this platform and we plug it relentlessly in workshops and with actors. We hear so often actors can't find a scene partner for their audition and this is the immediate solution. It's a global platform that helps you find a scene partner on demand through video chat for rehearsals and self-tapes worldwide. So if you need an accent or just decide to tape at 2am, We Audition is where you'll find someone. It also enables actors to meet casting directors, agents and industry experts for one-on-ones through video chat. Sign up for a membership to access actors and industry professionals all around the world. You could also be a reader for other actors, which is a great way to continue practicing and playing with scenes. We're offering our listeners a 25% discount on your membership when you use the code SOURCE25. That's S-A-U-C-E-2-5. Head to weaudition.com to sign up. Source 25 for your discount. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I don't know what we were waiting for there. I think we. Um, it's always so fun when we're together. Uh, how, how's your week been? Just generically. Then um, I'll ask you a source. Yeah, pretty good. What happened? I don't know. Like we're in kind of limbo land. We'll just talk about work for a sec. We're in kind of limbo land with like quotes and stuff and Mm. there's like a million quotes out. Yeah. And you know how like I have this feeling when there's a million quotes out that it's just going to all start to. Yeah, it's either really overwhelming or like uh what if it doesn't? Yeah. Um, And I've just had this anticipation since um, it reopened that it was just going to be insanely busy but I mm. think everybody's just been kind of enjoying a and little everyone, bit of yeah. open time and everyone's and probably a little bit nervous yeah I think so but I think now the confidence is coming back because it's pretty sweet yeah yeah so uh in a short response I've been in anticipation that's how I felt this week okay yeah what about you? Oh, I think I've felt the same way. It's like mm. I've been on the edge of like, oh, someone's going to confirm a job in a second. Yeah. So something's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, maybe I'll course. walk away from my desk. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. Oh, oh maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do this all the time. It's like I, le- I left everything until the last possible second this week. So mm, yeah. um, just yesterday my to-do list was two pages long. But I got it but all you done. you did it, which is great. Efficiently. Yeah. Which is, you know, not, not a bad thing. No, that's a great thing. Well, tell me, what's your source this week? My source? Oh, um, my source of the week is my sister and uh, my brother-in-law and my two nephews. We all went camping with mm-hmm. myself and my daughter, Ziggy. And I got some four-wheel driving lessons on oh, the beach. cool. Which was, like, so fun. That's great. It was so fun. It was very scary, but so fun. Was it? Why was it scary? Because you, like... I didn't realise, but you basically have no control over the car. Yeah, the wheels just do whatever the fuck they yeah. want. Yeah. So, like, I've, I'd been four-wheel driving before with them, but I didn't actually think about the driving, the part. technical part of driving yeah. on the beach. And before we went up there, I was like, no, nah, I'm going to get Tristan to give me some four-wheel driving lessons because I'd mm-hmm. really like to know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And he's so funny. Like, he's very he's a very practical guy. He's a tradie. 
um, and he taught me how to like decompress the wheels oh. and what PSI. Oh yeah, what that pressure? What the fuck that is? Um, High pressure. Yeah, how to use the little thingy to take. Oh, to you put didn't the know valve. how to do the thingy. No, 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 okay. I didn't know how to do all that. So he taught me all of that. Now I know. Brilliant. Um, and yeah, he just sort of uh, so I he did all that and then he's like oh you start driving so we're in the campground and mm. I was like but but what you're just but gonna how? I'm just gonna just drive it onto the beach and he's like yeah and I was like oh okay I thought we'd like ease into it a bit and no better like, way than just being thrown into it exactly hey? so we got onto this little and the beach track is not like a two-lane fucking freeway it's this tiny little track that you have to like navigate who's coming on and off the beach oh and all God. the etiquette and I don't know any etiquette so I was like just as we were entering the sand he was like okay stop here and I was like oh shit okay stop and he was, stop. like puts, puts all the buttons and does all the things and then I was like you know what is there anything that I need to know like You've literally told me nothing about what to do here. And he's like, just do not hit the brake. And oh. I was like, oh, well, that's fucking imperative oh, no. information. That's like a response thing. Yeah. Though. So like. What if a kid runs in front of your car? Well, you just basically just ease off the accelerator, you, but you never hit the brake because then you sink in the sand <gasps> and then it's very hard to and get it's bogged. Oh, fuck. Well, that's so stressful. He, he said it might not bog. Because it he's but in it's a not cruiser, ideal. But he says, it's not ideal and that would paint me. And I was like, oh, God, okay. Well, that ruins the camping trip. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I didn't get it bogged. Um, Perfect. And I was like, I was a bit in my element, which is a bit weird because it's, it's a skill that you don't really need in the city. <laughs> and I no, don't have the right car for that. you need it on holidays maybe. Yeah. So that's great. You so, can go and hire a four-wheel drive. You can yeah. go buy a four-wheel drive if you like and go four-wheel driving, oh, Steph. I'm not sure. You can't park Steph, it anywhere in the I'm, city, though. I'm not sure if Steph Pringle from, from Coogee really needs a four-wheel drive. Um, Seems impractical. My dad would just look at me and be like, what the fuck are you doing? You're doing I it all that. wrong. Yeah. It's all upside down. <laughs> just get back to my country roots. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. It all was fun. a new skill. There you go, a new skill. Perfect. What's um, your source? My source is way less cool than that. Um <laughs> I've realised, maybe over a period of time, I've realised I'm slightly obsessed with Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh. So, how so? This week I've just been like, well, I'm not like stalking or anything. It's not like, it's not, not, it's not like you kind of shit. Um, but I've just, like, my love's grown this week for her. And I, like, really delved into, so, like, this week I feel like I've been thinking about Gwyneth Paltrow a lot. Oh. Is that weird? No. I mean, I okay. know nothing about her, though. Yeah, okay, so, so what's I didn't, a fun fact that I we wouldn't fully, know? I fully nothing to her, right? And then I started listening to her in interviews. She was on, like, Smartless. Yeah. And then um, Armchair Expert and all Both that. podcasts. Both podcasts. Mm-hmm. And she's so delightful. Like, she's really delightful to listen to. I just feel like she's just a really nice person. Oh. And I really just wanted to... I can be friends with her, <laughs> you know, it's like really intense. And she's also very open. And I think this is her whole thing about Goop, that um, she's created this platform and community and website that's like opening up conversations for women that are mm-hmm. not, it's all about. So now she's released this new show all about sex with Goop. Ooh. You have to watch it. It's so uncomfortable. It's oh so uncomfortable. Like, Don't watch it with anyone. Like how uncomfortable? Well, it's just like that feeling of I'm fucking glad that's not me there. Oh. Yeah. I'll watch it and be like, oh, this is fascinating. But is it a documentary? What are we? What? It's, they get 
six couples together that want to like improve their sex life and then they get paired with a sexologist and they go and do all this stuff. <gasps> oh my god, what's it, it called? Sex, love and goop. Okay. Anyway, I, it's just eye-opening and uncomfortable and I, she's just that she's very much like wants to open those conversations and she's a very empowered woman. I don't know, mm. she's just fucking awesome. Okay. Anyway, I think everyone needs to get more on the Gwyneth Paltrow bandwagon is right. what I'm putting out there. Great. I and love I think, a good obsession with a celebrity. Yeah. And it's not because it's not like I'm like, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow, how good was she in that movie? Like I literally don't think I've ever watched her anything aside from Sliding Doors. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I mean, what fucking movies has she been in? But I seriously, what a great – she's a great human. Anyway, right. everyone get on board with I know she named her kid Apple, but – I mean, I'm not against that. Okay. She was married to Chris Martin from Coldplay, That's right? That's who her kids are to. But now uh, she's married to someone else. Right. And she has her two kids and his two kids and they have a big old happy family and um, she's just fucking great. Wow. And she's funny and – anyway, this is fucking creepy, but <laughs> – Gwyneth Paltrow's been on my mind this week. Wow. And I love that. I think everyone should take away watching that show and just open your eyes a little bit to some fucking awkward stuff. But great. Oh, my God. Is it is it American, the show? Yeah, because it's yeah. her show. So Goop, you know that, her company. Well, I don't really know. No, I don't know anything about Oh, okay, about so her. she has Goop, this company that started as like started a while ago and I think she copped a little bit of flack because she was a little bit hippy-dippy about all the shit we like of what kind of herbs can you take oh. that improve XYZ oh, and because fuck. it's all like be like not FDA approved all these people were like she um, doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about and this right. thing's gonna give me a rash or some crap and anyway this is not fact-checked but <laughs> I just think she was a little bit before everyone got on this bandwagon uh, of herbal shit and alternative crap. Anyway. Which we both love. Which we both love. And she's also created her own, like, skincare line and so there's all these oh. goop products. And then there's – it's all – it's like an online community as well, so it's got blogs and hmm. it's just like a place for women. It's got online shopping, so she sells, like, sustainable clothing and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Oh. It's a okay. whole thing. It's a big company. She has 350 employees. Holy shit. It's enormous. Yeah, I I mean I've heard of it, but I yeah. ha- I don't really I didn't really know what it was because I didn't really take much notice. And much it's notice just like slowly grown and it's huge, and now it's got its own TV show, The Goop Project, which is what she started first on Netflix. I haven't watched that, but I think it's just about that's her discovering all different ways of living and alternative healings and medicines and stuff. Oh. So it would actually be really interesting. That was her first show, and then she's just released she's released this whole line of sex related things on goop oh and then so she did the show okay anyway i open up fucking uncomfortable don't watch it with your mum oh or your dad that'd be oh worse. god oh <laughs> or your like parents-in-law or something real fucked don't no. do it yeah no i won't do that or your kid uh oh i mean it'd be a good education piece depends how old your kid is oh okay anyway. Save that for when Ziggy's oh, yeah. 27. While, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my source. Everyone oh. get on to Gwyneth wow. Paltrow. I just went down into a rabbit hole of like having to talk to our kids about sex one day. That's where I've gone. I feel like they're going to talk to us about it. That's going to be that time. I reckon it's going to oh. be the time where they're really like open-minded. And oh, like, God, no, Mom. please. Yeah, it's going to be a thing. Fuck. And we'll be like, I don't know, I'm not ready to talk about it. <laughs> Ick, yuck. What? Yuck. No, I don't do that. <laughs> I've never done that. How did I get here then? <laughs> I don't know. 
Oh, well. Oh, well, on that note, wow, we went, oh, we went everywhere note. today. We did. <laughs> Vic Zerbst is an award-winning comedy director, writer and comedian whose comedy sketches and web series have amassed over 70 million views online. Vic started directing comedy sketches for The Feed on SBS in 2019, where she still works as a writer, director and performer. Last year, she co-directed the War on 2020 web series funded by Screen Australia, including the viral sketch The Contact Tracys, which garnered acclaim from the likes of Taika Waititi and Chelsea Clinton. Her writing for SBS The Feed comedy team also won her an Augie for Best Short Form Comedy in 2020. She's currently in pre-production for the Screen Australia-funded web series Me and Herpes, which she is directing for Chips and Gravy Productions. Big Zerps, hello. Hey guys, how's it going? Good, how are you? Ah, oh, so good. I'm just, yeah, enjoying my Friday. How's that? It's the f- very beginning of your Friday, so it's mm. destined to be Friday a good one. Early, beautiful day. Yeah. Yeah. Did we drag you out of bed? Not at all. I've already been for my morning walk, so I'm like oh. rejuvenated. I'm, Fresh. I'm living, living a good Friday. Yeah. Love that. Brill. Well, thanks for joining us. Oh, pleasure. We're yes. excited. Um, so we, we ask every guest uh, to start with, what is your source of the week? Oh, my source of the week is I am, you know, fresh out of lockdown, trying to set up some of my friends. I've been like having like little catch ups with people I haven't seen in ages. And then all my single friends are like, I just, I'm so excited. I want to meet new people and not even in a romantic sense. I'm just kind of like, you should meet you and you like, it's all, I don't know, it's all very fun. But I've got like, I'm setting up two friends at the moment in a romantic capacity. And that it's very, it's exciting. I like to see how it all. So you've taken on the role of Hitch. Is it Hitch? Will Smith? Yeah, Hitch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen absolutely. that film. I mean, it's literally what Vic's doing. So you're That's, a professional yeah, matchmaker now. Professional matchmaker, absolutely. So you should be taking commission. <laughs> well, Side we'll hustle. I think I'll take the commission of love. Because I'm also, oh, my lockdown thing that I like did that was like, I just want to do something a little bit out of the industry is I'm doing like a cert for in marriage celebracy. So oh. I want to be, I want to be a marriage celebrant. So I'm doing this like online course and I'm like learning about like the ritual of love and all the laws and the marriage act. And so I'm just kind of like very much like on the, on the course of love, just want to be around love. Want to see, Yeah. So I, that's, I'm really excited about that. Oh, you're that's loved really up. Good. You will be the best marriage celebrant. Yeah. Like watch the money roll in. Oh, I, so I am really excited. I think it would be so fun. Just not, not, you know, not to do a show, but to like facilitate like a really beautiful and thoughtful ceremony. Um, that's like, you know, it's going to be uh, hopefully really beautiful. Oh, oh. I love that. Do you have, um, you probably don't know yet, but do you have an idea of what your like signature line, opening line would be? Oh, you know, I have no idea, but I like my, one of my favorite books is Bell Hooks, um, book on love like all about love and I think that I'll do like a lot of reading and like at uni I studied philosophy and there's like a lot of philosophy of love stuff and like thinking about like humanist ways to like um kind of redefine the ritual around love and and how we celebrate partnerships and that's one thing that I will always come back to whenever I talk about the industry and like collaboration I'm really interested in like what is at the heart of like collaboration and partnerships and um yeah compromise in a really like going deep within 
uh, going deep within to ensure like connection above all. Oh, you're a total wow. romantic. So I've gone, I've gone the opposite in my philosophy studies and I'm reading a lot of Alain de Botton at the moment mm. and he's quite yeah. – um, I wouldn't say fully cynical yeah. about love, but he's a realist. Yeah. So he's very yeah. real about – and I really resonate with that article that he wrote on marriage and that you are almost certain to marry the wrong person. I loved that article. Oh, oh my God. Absolutely. I was like, I really yeah. – I actually wish that I'd read that because I because I'd only found it recently, but if I'd read that when it was written in 2016, I would have probably mm. I don't know made oh, some married. <laughs> made some changes. <laughs> no, it's so it's so interesting, and I think that's so true that we do idealize love in this way and forget that most you know partnerships and interactions like are actually difficult and mm. require like a lot of thought and a lot of like yeah internal. Um, contemplation and and I think that that's you know having you know I've been working with my comedy partner for six years and you know a lot of people see outwardly like you know it's very easy it's breezy but I think it's because we really you know work on that relationship I'm really interested in what the work means and Mm. the most exciting thing about celebrancy studies is that you learn about like the resources to give couples and you like talk about the importance of what it means to to marry and I think it is it's one of those things that you it's you know, anything, anything can happen. Mm. And it's just finding those little ways, um, those little structures to kind of choose collaboration, um, but not at the expense of like your individual individuality. Yeah. yeah. It's like marriage, romantic relationships aren't free of conflict just because they're romantic. They're not no. just all loved up. I no, actually definitely. think I read, I read somewhere and I don't know whether it was just a gag or it's truth about you and Jenna, um, your comedy partner that you yeah. had like a Google tabs where you wrote your yeah. conflicts and I was Absolutely. like, God, yeah. maybe well, we, we should try to find <laughs> <laughs> It's really, we try so many different ways to kind of communicate difference because a lot of time, you know, difference comes up or like difference of opinion all the time when making creative decisions. You have different opinions and I think working together, we've had to become really well versed in how to communicate like the aesthetics of difference or like what it is it about a certain joke that doesn't work in this capacity. I think that stuff gets a little bit easier in a working capacity, but we don't really have the same language. I'm saying it in general when it comes to like conflict from a personal like nature mm. and only now we're like learning about, you know, things like, you know, attachment styles and, and um, you know, learning about, you know, like you know defensiveness and how to combat that and having like awareness of how you react in conflict and I think for a while um we tried out and it worked really well having a google doc so we'd be in different places and we were able just to write everything down because something sometimes when you write stuff down you actually have to think about it and you have to formulate what you're saying and you can have a little bit more thought whereas sometimes in arguments you can just say whatever you say and you're like I actually don't mean that at all there's something about writing it down that is like very different and that it does work and then I think the best thing the reason we really love it is at the end of the google doc we just delete it all like we've dealt with Mm. it we've engaged with it and then we let it go there's something very it's, it's again ritualistic of like letting go all of that drama being like, okay, we've solved this. You can comment on things. We're having, we're riffing it out. And at the end of the day, I, like we don't keep any of the docs. Like we don't keep tabs of them. And mm. we just go like, that was, that was that. We don't have to go back. We don't have to keep score. We've hashed it out and, and that's it. I think that's brilliant. And I think oh. like we just literally spoke about this and how that would help someone take some information and not have to respond immediately. It gives you that space mm. to think about it mm. before you feel the need to respond which you would feel like you'd need to do in person and then sometimes respond the way you don't want to, like you say. 
and that gives you yeah. this brilliant chance of thinking about it and then coming back anyway. Yeah. I mean, I am not a verbal communicator at all. I love True. writing shit down and yeah. I've always been that person who if I've got conflict with someone, you know, the classic, write them a letter Write them a letter, but don't send it. Yeah, I've always done yeah, that. Set it on fire. Yeah, set it on fire. Say all the, the shit Absolutely. that you want to that you want to put out yeah. there, but mm. just get rid of it and. Don't don't send that. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> it's it's so cathartic and yeah. like you know practicing saying things over. Like it's so it's so easy um, to just get really trapped in in the feeling of things. But the process of like writing that down and letting it sit, I think that's I think a skill also. Like the the times my heart raced the most are like you know in terms of conflict and you have the adrenaline of like this is a real big thing I'm facing is almost like a very similar process you get when you like watch the first cut of like something you're working on like or the first draft of like a short film and you're just like oh my god I need to address all these things but like you need to actually step back and be like okay one thing at a time I'm just gonna write these notes slowly and I'm not gonna like explode with that kind of like it is it's 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 confronting when the thing that you see is not the thing that you that you want or idealize in a friendship or in in a piece of art Mm. it's very good for um I think I heard I heard you on a podcast on Will's Will Anderson's podcast um and you were saying that you love to work in groups yeah so I feel like that's a really they don't teach you that at uni though with the with the conflict resolution and how to deal with conflict in a group really um, no, not, not at all. They and just they expect kind of you just to chuck you in a group. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's why everyone fucking hates group work at uni yeah. because every no, you all get put together with all these different clashing personalities, and you get yeah. and you are told you have to work as a team, but no one knows how yeah. to how to navigate conflict or you know work through that. And I then you don't in a workplace either. No, well, you're just yeah. carrying those mm. you're carrying those bad habits into your life mm. and into your relationships and into your friendships mm. and your partnerships. You know, so it's very. Yeah. Mm. That's a great tool. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not something that I don't think it necessarily comes that easily either. Like I definitely don't see myself as someone who has like a proclivity to like group scenarios. And I, cause I grew up as like an only child and always very kind of interior and internal and kind of alone. And I feel like I'm not running after social groups or like I'm not particularly extroverted for me the process of actually collaborating and working in groups of people is almost this I have to like think about it like I have to come into it and be like how do I you know address this group it's it's actually a lot less um easy I mean maybe I'm not you know Jenna always says I never give myself enough credit in this capacity because I always see myself as kind of having you know social stuff as a card for me like I'm actually surprisingly quite shy um, but I it wouldn't, it wouldn't, I don't think come across. Um, actually that's it's so funny. That's a lot of the stuff that I'm working on in therapy at the moment is I'll, I'll say something and my therapist is like, that's so interesting because that is not at all how you come across to people. And I'm not sure how much of that is like a disconnect between my authenticity or whether I just have like this internal way of processing and a different way of, of being around people. But I think that, um, collaboration is not something that is like the easiest thing. And I just slide into it. I think it does take a lot of work and thought and maybe that's kind of why I like it because there is this challenge of like not only are you trying to solve a problem but you're trying to solve a problem with so many different people Mm. um 
But I think that the the moment that I was like, oh, collaboration is the most exciting way to make anything is I was at uni and I was editing the student newspaper and there was a team of 10 of us in like an editorial ticket, like a team of people. And it we were all very, very different approach to work in very different ways, but it was really one of the rare experiences where you have 10 people who are incredibly passionate about doing doing the same thing that you are all working together to create something on a week by week basis um, and having that deadline and having everyone work on different things and seeing what everyone brings to the, to the, you know, big stew. It was like the most exhilarating year in, in, a, in, in a creative life because you have so many people working on one thing um, and every week you get to see the result of that and then reflect and then build and learn. So I think most of the things that I learned were actually from that, from that experience from um, yeah, editing the student newspaper. Can you believe? That's wow. so great, but that's like what you were saying, Steph. Like at uni, you don't usually mm. have the the exposure no, to the group stuff. So you have so to rare. you have to go it's and so like rare. seek being in body like group bodies that that aren't mm. your assignments. Yeah, it's mm. really good. Yeah, interesting. And you obviously would um, take a lot of that into your directing in terms of collaboration with you know because you've got so many different personalities on set often, mm. and particularly working with so many different egos and you know, um, do you well, know what I mean? Absolutely. In terms no, of- absolutely. And I think what's so interesting about the position of a, a director is it is, you know, a leadership position. There is somewhat of a, of a hierarchy on set, which is, you know, something that is difficult to kind of sometimes navigate through, but you realize why it is important because someone has to be making decisions. I think the big conflict that I have in my life, just even like philosophically thinking about the role of the individual within a group is you have to say like, you know, I am one part of this, but this project isn't about me or or my, you know, particular, I mean, it, it with directing it is hard because a lot of times you are selling a vision and a lot of times you're getting people on board with that vision and you bring people in to collectively achieve that vision. So there is an element of idea creating an individual vision and, and foresight. But then I think you have to be so aware of the, the director is a facilitator of that vision as opposed to someone who is kind of really didactic and authoritarian. Like I think there's, I don't know why, but I, I love, I'm currently listening to the audiobook of Obama's A Promised Land about his yeah. role as like a president and running a campaign and getting people on board. And it's, it's, it's a, I'm very interested in, in leadership in that capacity. And, and I think I have weirdly a lot of books on, on leadership because I think it's also one of those things that everyone like, you know, aspires to and, uh, and talks about like, you know, leadership, but it's, I think it's actually one of the most difficult things to do if you really care about the people that you are working with. Yeah. Because it is so easy to take like this, I don't care, like, you know, dogmatic, anything for power perspective, but to actually be someone whose job is to like transform and, and um, facilitate and, I, like I'm a big proponent of like transformative leadership where your work is there to make sure everyone is able to do their best job and to go on their own journey and also know that that journey isn't your idealized version of what that journey is. And it you have to become so, um, when you really like, you become so caring of everyone in your team. Um, and yeah, it's that's the thing that I, I think I think about the most. And, and, and at what point does your individual vision of what something have to has to be interact with what other people are trying to achieve. And I think that's why like 
I am so interested in 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 pre-production. Like I think pre-production is my favorite time of the creative process because that's when you are sharing ideas and that is when everyone's, you know, getting excited and and um, there's this idealistic vision of what this project could be. Um, but then you get into like, you know, the work and the sweat of of whether that actually happens or what happens or what problems come up along the way. Um, and I think there is, yeah, a lot of times and I think that's the the bit like the the hardest thing as a, as a creative person to deal with is when you have an, a vision of what something is, and when something doesn't necessarily meet that vision, what do you do? How do you bounce back? What do you take from it? Mm. And you have to have like a long form view because oh my God, my biggest fear I think would ever to, to be in charge or to be at the helm of something that is not something that I necessarily agree with. Like the idea of like you know being an indie filmmaker is the dream right because you are making something that is you know on a smaller scale and you kind of can have more collaboration with a team but as soon as you're brought into these big like I always just think of what it would be like to you know be at the the head of like a big marvel you know universe where most of the decisions are happening outside of your control and you are trying to you know that for me I mean like that would be incredibly scary and difficult um, I think existentially to be like, what what role am I serving within this big machine? Yeah, I've often yeah. thought about that. Yeah, like yeah. just how many people yeah. it takes to get something like that to the mm. final product and on screen. I'm mm. always just like, yeah. this is like, it blows my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I love how really, you, yeah. I love how you referred to um, directors as facilitators mm. because I think that's a lot of, what we try what, that we kind of struggle with as casting directors in the sense that we're not mm. in a we don't we're, we're not in a decision making um role in terms of the final decision of who gets mm. cast obviously mm. you do that um as a director um but yeah i mean in terms of being on set and and for having to having someone to look to you know people mm. need someone to look to to know that they're safe and someone's going to make a decision mm. at some point that's going to serve everyone and it's going to do the project justice etc mm. yeah but I think that's I mean that's what's so amazing I like I think the casting process is one of the most exciting parts of making anything mm. and it's so exciting to work with you know, casting directors, because that is the whole thing of you, you are facilitating and bringing people together and finding these connections and, and having a view of like knowing what's out there and, and, and having an eye and a vision of like that person could be this, or this is an interesting way of looking at that. And there's something so exciting about that from a directing point of view, when you are, sometimes you come into something and you don't necessarily entirely know how to fully form this character or you don't know how to make it, you know, really fleshed out. There is something so exciting about the bringing of people together for a project and knowing that that is part of what is going to make it just, just sing and and make it work. It's, I think that's, it's such an amazing thing to do. It works the other way though for us as well, because we, we start our process with our ideas in our mind and then we get in studio and do our Mm. thing and we're, freaking thrilled and excitable but then when we get a director in the room like yourself it takes a whole nother level Mm. it's just like seeing a director's perspective on an actor and a character yeah just it yeah it makes our process even more exciting again it takes that next level up so it's quite funny how each of us complement each other and blow each other's mind yeah Mm. well also I don't know what your so actually this is a great question what is your process in terms of 
when you have your script, do you um, obviously do you, do you do a table read? So so for the retreat, for instance, that we cast for you, mm. I think twenty nineteen. Um, mm. Did you get actors to do a table read before you even got to the casting process? Uh, how did you how did you get through that before you got before you came to us? That is such a good question. So the retreat was the first thing that I had really directed with like the guidance. Like we did that through afters and I was just kind of like a guns for hire come in kind of person. I came from a background of directing sketches for the feed where everything that we, that we direct and we make, we have written and we know exactly the kind of reading. We know what kind of thing we're looking for because we've written the text for the retreat. That was a whole new process where I hadn't written the text and it, you know, kept growing and changing. And I think our biggest failure in that capacity was the fact that we didn't actually do a table read before we went into casting. Interesting. And we were a little bit more like governed by, oh, like, let's just see, let's just see what's out there, which I think made us, it made us very open to ideas of, of what things could sound like and look like. I think that was probably um, maybe a, a mistake of us not doing that. I know that the project I'm working on right now, I, I've written with the comedy team at the feed, this half hour musical um, called Open House about um, the property market and, yeah. and different people trying to get into the property market. And it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's going to be like me and Montaigne as like the two oh, kind of main I characters love trying Montaigne. to like wow. you know, buy a property. Yeah, she is amazing. And it's been the most incredible thing. And, and, and um, Tom Cardi, he's like a, yeah. a music um, comedian. Yeah. So he's doing all the music. Well, he's done all the music for it. And it's so fun. But we've been working on that. And we've had so many table reads for that just as a writing team. And that process made it really clear when we were getting a sense of the beats. You just kind of come up with ideas being like, oh, like, you know, this comedian has an idea or this might be a good idea. And it's it's very interesting. But, you know, the feed is such a small kind of scale, quick kind of production that you don't actually get all the steps whereas the retreat was the first time I was like oh these are like all the, the you know the the red tape that you have to that you have to you know you know cut through and you have to be across all these different things in a very structured way that I would say you know in, in the industry would work as a middle ground between the feed which is a little bit more I just call it feed style which is quick and you're bringing things in and solving problems on the fly whereas after is very very well thought out um but for for the retreat, we didn't actually do it a read. And mm. I, I think that it's also very interesting the, the the relationship between the writer and the director is is something because the writer of that is, you know, a really close friend of mine. She's so brilliant and we get along really well. But at the end of the day, like I'm serving her script. And that's a really interesting thing to play off as well because I'm very used to my background is doing kind of everything so I came from you know doing comedy reviews at, at uni where you are you know writing scripts you're acting um and performing them and then you kind of uh, devising how that might look on the stage um and so when you come to those really defined roles you really have to start thinking about well, what is you know what is right for me as a director and also strangely as a friend to her mm. Because I think it would be it sometimes would be quite easy. You get a script, and I, I know a lot of directors. Like I know my comedy partner Jenna has done a lot of kind of big, um, kind of you know shows for Stan, and she's done a lot of big sets. And she talks about how you can really tell when a director doesn't have as much respect for the script as you might think they should. I think you see a lot of this when male directors take over the scripts of women, mm. where they override and change and 
flip things around and think that they have some kind of more incredible insight than a writer of, of female characters. So they're coming from the perspective of a woman, of a woman. And I think Jenna's been on a lot of sets where that still happens, especially like big American productions. You know, everything might be written by women, but the you know a male director will come in and change things up. And so you can kind of tell when there isn't that respect for the script or respect for the vision of the writer. But at the end of the day, like there isn't necessarily like the producer kind of will bring the director on or like there'll be big decisions about that. And it's kind of like you're fighting between the power of who gets vision between the writer, the director, and also the producer, because the producer could be unhappy with the way that a director works as well. Mm. I'm finding it very interesting currently, like watching shows where certain actors are also executive producers on the show, because that also... That's Flip becoming really, dynamic. really yeah. popular, particularly yeah. in Hollywood. You know, in yeah. big, yeah. in bigger yeah. shows that are yeah. that are commissioned, and the lead actors are now also yeah. EPs. Well, they often have yeah. their own production companies as well. Yeah, they, they're making so the whole thing. Yeah, it's a really, it is a really interesting time to be seeing that because I feel like that's only a really recent thing, right? Yes, yeah. I'd say it's quite recent and I think that it's it's definitely a lot of it. I think Reese Witherspoon has had a lot to do with that in terms of like a lot of women feeling empowered and I think that's so important for actors because they're at the end of the day the people whose faces are on things and I think it's so important for them to have executive producer status but it, that means that they are also going to be sitting in on the edit or having a hand in choosing who the director is and I just I felt that so vividly watching Nine Perfect Strangers mm. which I think made some interesting choices. Mm-hmm. I felt as a director, it was kind of let down by direction, but I wonder how much of that was, especially for a character like, or an actor like Melissa McCarthy, who I think was able to kind of, you could tell, was able to kind of riff and was indulged in certain moments where I was like, maybe as a director, I would pull back on that a little bit. Mm. But I don't know because she was an EP, whether that's something that she wanted to do for herself. And so many and of them EP'd on that as well. Yeah. Nicole Kidman yeah, so did as well. And it's like. I yeah. don't know how you would get anything approved and and locked. Like that's yeah. so many different personalities and so many different yeah. people, personalities that are also got their best interests at heart because they're on screen. Yeah. Yeah, well, very that's the thing. and that can be very tricky. And I know that personally because I, I mean, most of the things that I write and often direct, so that's kind of easy for me. I'm like, I like that take. I want this different take. But it also happens when I'm in a space and I don't have final cut over my own image, and it is one of the most difficult things to know that your face is on something that you might not necessarily agree is your best take, and that's why there has to be like a lot of trust between the actors and the directors, and you'd really hope that when when you know actors EP their own work, they have trust in a director to be able to be to say something like, "Actually, I disagree with you." Funnily enough, that is a very interesting dynamic I'm having working with um, Chips and Gravy at the moment because I'm directing their web series mm. Me and Herpes, yes. and them. Gemma Bernmathson, who is just so brilliant and yeah. an incredible writer and actor and producer, has executive produced the series, has written it, and is starring in it, and I'm coming in as a director. And that's also very interesting. I think I was very lucky in that capacity that I was in the writer's room for that. So I came to the text knowing the text and knowing the written work and had a lot to say about the writing, especially in web, especially for comedy. So I felt like I had expertise in that capacity. And I I even said to them, and this is a lot of what I do. I said, if you are looking for a director, I would love to be considered. I really think this is amazing. And these are the ways that I think it could sing. A lot of the times, even for the retreat, Sophie, originally the writer, approached me to be in the retreat and I said, um, yes, who's directing? And she said, I'm still looking. And I said, let me do it. 
And she said, yes, can you believe? So a lot of times. Yes, I can believe. Is, yeah. But, but a lot of times it is that, that saying that leaning in and, and knowing that, you know, I'm quite scrappy. I don't, I don't just wait and sit around for things to happen. If I am excited by the work or excited by the idea, I will step in and say, I'm happy to try this. And you do sell yourself a little bit on that. And, and, you know, whether you live up to the sale that always, you know, that's always the question, but I think I like to really um, have the confidence of, of, of any man who believes that they can do it. And I'm just saying, okay, let's give this a go. Yeah. Um, but working with Gemma on me and herpes is so amazing. And I think that relationship really works because we do trust each other. And there is this expertise that I know she knows, you know, what makes a take really good for her, what, parts of the script she really likes and I'm really there in that capacity to facilitate that and to offer perspectives of let's try this or let's try something a little bit different or how can we find distance between you know you you personally or how you think you can play this character or or pushing you a little bit further but at the end of the day I know she's going to be in the edit and as the executive producer we'll probably have more of a say on final cut than I will and that will be a very interesting process Mm -hmm. and that's when you kind of have to sit back and go, okay, so my capacity, I am coming in as a guns for hire to serve this vision that is not necessarily, well, I mean, it will, it will be the vision that I have because we do have a lot of agreements and you have to find the right fit. I think that's the main thing that um, when people building teams, especially first time people making things is not even knowing whether you have the right flow or, or connection with a a co-creator. I've been very lucky to have that with Jenna. Like Jenna is, I've been writing with her for six years, which is actually incredible that we've been working together nonstop um, and, and still like having the best time. And like, you know, we still miss each other and we don't see each other or, you know, we will just, there's nothing better than when we share a laugh and when we have ideas um, getting ready. But I think trust is so important. And it also is important for an actor to trust a director. And I know a lot of times I've been in rooms where I've been like, I don't know if, I like a lot of times in theater, like I've done a lot of like, you know, student theater or like amateur theater where the director's also figuring shit out. Mm. Um, and a lot of times you as an actor go, I don't, I like, you know, the worst thing to feel is like, I just don't agree with this direction. I don't agree with this vision. And that's also a really difficult, you know, interpersonal dynamic to kind of work towards because you are not going to, not every single actor is going to completely agree with you unless there is this like hero worship kind of like this person's a genius situation well and I think that's a really unhelpful um dynamic anyway because it just means that people think that the director is a you know not a human being like people are human beings and sometimes people don't make the best creative decisions in the moment what I think is really important is for them to be able to like reflect listen to other people take that on board and be able to advocate for their position based on what everyone is trying to achieve Mm. and a lot of times like it's having the humility to be like actually like I know I'm supposed to you know be this figurehead and I'm supposed to make these big decisions but sometimes when someone is bringing things forward like that's that's the main thing that I really like to take on board is in that collaborative process I honestly really just take the time to listen and consider everything that's brought to me as a suggestion the downside of that I'm really noticing is it does take a little bit more time and it is draining <laughs> yeah. um, as hell to, to constantly be, you know, checking your, your kind of vision, which is, again, the, the conflict that I'm having about the role of the individual vision versus this collective vision. Because I do believe that more voices are better than one, but at the end of the day, there needs to be one voice that is, you know, bringing all these ideas together. It's back mm. to that leadership thing. Yeah. And that's, yeah, yeah. it's the leadership thing. Well, just winding back on building trust as an actor mm. with a director, mm. is there a way that you do that before you start 
shooting or is there a, is there something that you do as a director to ensure that you've got that rapport with an actor before you start working with them? I think, unfortunately, a lot of times the trust that an actor will have for a director before you start working, a lot of times you don't actually get to have that rapport unless you're in like a casting room. And a mm. lot of times that's where trust is being built. And for actors, you know, actors listening, a lot of times the director's just wanting to see, like, can there be trust between you? Can you take something on board that the director says? And and just open to try things out. A lot I of think comedians, funnily enough, when they audition, there's less of a trust in the director because they usually direct their own performance that the director actually has the right thing or there's a bit of arrogance being like, I don't actually think that's the, the right thing. And the director will take that on board and be like, okay, so I don't think we can collaborate on this together to create this performance that I have in mind. Um, so it's just that openness and that openness for for an actor to trust a director. I think a lot of times the trust that an actor might have for a director comes from reputation, um, which I think can be a, a difficult thing because a lot of times people will look at the work someone's done, but you can ha see a really amazing film and think the director's a genius, but they might not be an amazing person to work with mm. because they might choose, you know, their vision and their process over like that collaborative way of working. You might have someone like, you know, make something that's kind of not, a, not, that you know that that top top you know short film or whatever but the way that they've done that or achieved that is a way that works really well for you as an actor so I think unfortunately it, it does come down to reputation to an extent in terms of you know when you're meeting people for the first time but the way things work usually is in the casting room and it is in that moment where you actually get a bit of time to collaborate and that is the test of you know usually when you get a recall or a callback you probably, you're pretty, you know, you can do the performance and that you'd be cast and the director would probably be happy with that. But the callback is really like, can we build this trust? Do we have a rapport? Can we take a bit of direction? And it's also just the the environment in the room because you are working on something that is so personal and, and it really is, yeah, I think that's the only kind of moment. And I think that's also why directors go back to the same actors that they've worked with. They go, I know this person can do this. I know that I have a rapport with them. Or even like, you know, as knowing comedians being like, oh, I know this comedian can do this particular thing very well. There's a trust that I know how to do that. And so it does come from reputation, does come from from being around. And that is why I'm, I'm such a, yeah, such a big believer in doing the scrappy parts of the industry as much as, you know, time and money allows because there is a big, you know, economic boundary to a lot of this kind of, you know, small scale kind of productions or theater like but I think that's the best practice an actor can have is in the working industry doing those small scale you know afters films doing the you know the play at KXT because that's where you're meeting the practitioners of of, of tomorrow yes um <laughs> yeah and that's where you can really build that trust because when if you really bank on certain creators to be the ones that are going to be making the decisions in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years, you've got a relationship with them and you're creating a network of, of, of people who have built that trust collaborating. Mm. It's a massive advice for actors. Cause we always tell, mm. we always tell actors that it's not just about the words on the page and what you do in the room. There's so mm. much more than that. And we need to be able to put forward our recommendations based on actors as humans as well and yeah. how, how much yeah. they're going to be open to collaborating. And if we mm. think they are going to be great people on set. Well, yeah, so I'm glad you made that point, actually, because yeah. it is so much about auditioning is not really about, well, once you get to callback stage, really, it's not about your performance 
anymore. It's whether you are mm. open and flexible and um, take direction. You like put work. your ego to the side and you're able to, and, yeah. and also, as you said, be empowered to to say no, I don't feel mm. like that mm. and not just mm. agreeing and doing that because that's also mm. unhealthy for an actor. I feel that they leave mm. the room and they go, oh, well, fuck, I don't really think I did the best job because I didn't really want to yeah. do it like that. I should have just done it yeah. like this, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I think all, all directors are kind of different, but I I always, yeah, I love when I see an actor come to a script with the, that, that sense of play and joy and like, can we try something different or, you know, what are they trying to do to connect with the, the, the if there's a chemistry, what are they trying to do to connect with that person and how open they are to, to listening? And I've been guilty of this myself as an actor when I'm really nervous. I'm like sitting there and I, well, standing there and the director will be saying something and I'm not really listening. I, and I know that I'm not listening because I'm just kind of like in my own little world trying to process things. I it's can like relate. Yeah, that's like, me. Yeah. That's yeah. day to day just, looking at me. Yeah, but it's true. Like, and I've, and I think that's what is so what what I've loved so much of, of moving into a director position from a background in, in acting and from a uh, you know background in, in writing is I'm I know all the steps of of where things can get really scary, and I I know that I mean whenever I get an audition brief um, for acting I always you know research the director and I I see their work I see if they've said anything or done a podcast or written anything and try to get a sense of do I want to spend time working with this person on something like this. That is, I mean, I do have the, you know, the luxury of choice at the moment. Like I've got like it, the schedule is, it's getting, it's hectic. So you can be like, you know, yes or no. But I think even knowing a sense of who this person is, how they kind of operate and how best they might work. And you know what? There are so many amazing resources out there to figure out who is in the, like in the community and who is making stuff like, you know, podcasts like these, like Screen Australia has good references, like, and sorry, resources to like listen to who is, who are the people making stuff at the moment and what is their kind of philosophy and how do they make things? Because this is the thing, the industry is really small. Like it's, it's, it's kind of claustrophobic and it, and it is small, which means that you can slowly, if you keep spending a bit of time, get to know, even just from a distance, who the people are and how these productions work together. Because at the end of the day, all things are made by like people. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're just, they're not even made. Like you always just think of the monoliths of production companies, but in, inside production companies, you have, you know, producers, development producers, you have people who are looking for new writers. There are people who are, you know, getting, you know, cutting their teeth directing. And, and it's, it's just, uh, all people are kind of like, you know, fallible human beings who are not kind of these impressive, you know, whatever. They're just people always trying to do their next work and trying to do their best job and prove themselves in, in a certain way. And it's, it's even humanizing directors in that in that sense is like you realize that, oh, you just want to do a really good job telling this story and you need someone to help you do that. And these are the things that I can offer as part of that process and not being like, I need to impress you because like the director doesn't need to be impressed. The director needs to be able to build a team they can work with to execute a vision. Um and I think that that's, you know, knowing also, I think the confidence in yourself as an actor, knowing that you actually have something and you have a self-belief that you have something to offer this set. Mm. I often sometimes will get a brief and I'll go, you know what? I don't really see myself for this. I would love to do it, but I don't see myself for this. Mm. Um, and that's an interesting thing to say as well. Like, you know, choosing the bits and pieces and, and, and saying, or, or if you 
are in a place where you don't want to turn things down and you want to give it a go, you can ask, how can I see myself in this? Or what part of me can serve this in an interesting way? Mm. Um, because there is that awareness. And I, I think it's, it's not, it's loosening this idea that you have to be this cookie cutter vision of what the director wants. That's really hard. I, th- I think, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, you're playing the scene as you think it should be played if it were in a TV show. But that is like, it sometimes becomes the opposite of truth for you individually. It's really this reflection of like, what am I bringing to this and what is different and interesting and true in my portrayal of this? And a lot of times it might completely take a director by surprise and, and, and rethink a character and go, that's actually something different, but it's true and I like it. Or it might be your true version and it isn't the director's true version. That doesn't mean your version is wrong. Mm. The thing that I always come to is this idea of like, there is a version of the show in which this happens, or there is a version of the show where this person's that, or there is a version of this. And there are so many versions. And a lot of times the choices that are made and which version you land on, there are so many reasons why that is the case. So mm. many reasons. I think it's and like it's never, yeah. It's like that age-old thing of um, Courtney Cox when she got her audition for Friends as Rachel, she was like, no, I'd be better at Monica. And it's like, can yeah. you imagine a better Monica and yeah. it's like just because they created the show doesn't mean they were right or it's mm. just everyone has their ideas and actors should feel empowered that they have some creative license or just creative mm. ideas that are of value mm. and it's seeing yeah. where they best serve a production and a team Absolutely. Yeah. and feeling confident and comfortable to have those opinions out loud. Mm. Mm. I think it's interesting just looking through a casting lens at um, you know, because when we put together options before we even bring anyone in, um, we like to do the the wild card thing. And whenever I read a script, I never read the – this is giving something away here – but I never read any of the Bible yet. I just read mm. the script and I put down yeah. all my ideas before I have any sort of um, preconceived. preconceived idea about yeah. what the director is looking for. Um mm. Because once I have the once I have your vision in my head, it's sort of hard for me to go, uh, to remove myself from that that image and mm. slot other people in to make things Absolutely. a little bit more interesting and Absolutely. you know. And I think it's I think it is important to put forward. You know, I, I don't know. Do do you find that helpful from a casting point of view? If you get a bunch well, of options that you're just like, this is not what I thought. Definitely. I love that part of, of everything because, you know, even in that first read, you might see someone do something completely different with a character that they've been given. And in your mind, you go, wait a second, that is something so special and interesting. What about for this particular role? Or there's something, you know, interesting here. I always think of, there's a story about Jonah Hill. He was brought in for a role and the casting like directors and, and the directors were like, there's something special here. these roles aren't right let's write something for this for this guy yeah and I think that that's for actors like and I always say this to myself I'm you're never really auditioning for the role you're auditioning for a relationship with a director who can see you in different capacities huge and you should do the most true and authentic performance for you to show this is what I kind of do best this is what I can bring to this role because you never know a character can get cut a character can completely change a character can uh, you know amalgamate into two characters and these things like really do change a lot from you know from casting from writing like you can bring in a character and suddenly an actor brings something so interesting and cool that you write them into season two in a way that you never thought so you as an actor are really bringing your kind of humanity, creativity and and personality, your individual stamp to a project and 
most of the time I'm like, who would be, you know, who would be really cool to work with or whose work am I really admiring right now? Or who's kind of doing something a little bit different or who has a life experience that can add to a story in a way that I wouldn't think. So I think for that, for those reasons, wild cards are so great just to see what's out there because I always, I don't know, maybe it's because I didn't go to acting school. I didn't go to drama school and neither did Jenna. Um, And a lot of it's for like, you know, financial reasons and not having the same access to like, you know, a three-year education in an arts capacity is, is, is hard to justify if you come from a lower socioeconomic region. I'm, I love to see actors who come at acting from a different place. Yeah, we love that too. Training, yeah, because there is something so interesting and 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 different and fresh and and yeah. They're not the cookie cutter actor. It's that thing of not cookie cutter. They're unique and they've come up with their like you and Jenna are so unique in your style and acting, comedy, everything. Like Mm. you come up with that on your own and no one else will. Mm. So you are you. I mean, we've been talking to a lot of grads like older grads who have graduated you know 20 years ago um and it's really interesting to hear that they have they they do the three-year um Mm. course and then they come out and they actually just have to relearn yeah they have to they have to undo everything Mm. to Mm. to learn how to actually you know be authentic and you know i think it's yeah Yeah. in today's climate and and also you know the the audition process you can't learn that until you just do it yeah, you know, and, and that is not no amount of drama school is ever going to prepare you for the audition process because it's yeah. just weird. I can't, I can't, yeah. I don't have any other words to describe it. Is it. Weird. It's a weird process, and often I stand behind the camera and go, "I don't know what I do for a job." I'm we just we do a weird job. Yeah, we just sit here and watch you, and we tell you to uh, do this weird, these weird things, and you just act it out, and we sit here and watch it, and we film it. That's what I, yeah. I once had in a really existential moment. Remember when we went to Belvoir Street Theatre, and we were watching Yale Stone, and her, yeah. at the time, husband, Dan Spielman, is that his name? I could be wrong. Uh, fact check that later. Um, yeah. Anyway, her ex-husband now, but they were doing a play together, and the characters mm. on stage were just having fights. They were just a fighting mm. husband and wife. And I was like, God, theatre's so weird. We just pay to watch people, <laughs> yeah. the other people in front of us. And I but also with a bunch of strangers. We, we sit were, next yeah. to a bunch of strangers in a dark room and we trust everybody in there is not a murderer. <laughs> yeah, I had a yeah. very weird moment that day. <laughs> yeah, it's no, it's so, it's so, it's so bizarre to be taken from like sitting in a room and then suddenly someone comes in and tries to like reach out and 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 change your heart or mind just mm-hmm. with a performance from something on a on a script. It's it's, it's, it's magic. But you are yeah. you're creating these little magic moments that we hope will change the way that people see the world. It's it is yeah. really weird. It's a weird thing. So I really want to ask you about um, women in comedy because I know you've mm. spoken a little bit about um, how challenging that was for a little while and there's this stigma around women are not funny. Um, mm. I want to know where you're at now on that and if you think you've surpassed it a bit, if you think there's still some growth to be mm. had. Do you still get told you're not funny because you're a woman? It's a great question. I think that, you know, where I am now, it doesn't seem like a, a question to really come up against even existentially like I am just kind of like m- all you know most of the comedians I know um 
that are like my favorite comedians are women or like non-binary comedians and have like they're just brilliant and I there's it actually just floors me that there was a world in which we didn't know that or didn't let that resonate with us because you just see it around you and you just go like in what world is like what 50 percent of the human race not capable of the thing that makes us human (laughs) yeah it's wild to think about that isn't it and also women make each other laugh we make our friends laugh we all laugh together yeah we're notoriously giggly people yeah yeah (laughs) it's actually absurd and it almost I think it's like you know a lot of you know men might not find what women laugh about particularly funny, but to use that as like this generalized, like this is the reason why women are not, it it actually, for me, it feels absurd. And it Mm -hmm. it just, you know, even in relation to everything that I watch and like even a show like hacks about different women in comedy and how good. Yes. It's so good. And just so like refreshing to see. And uh, like the writing team without is, is women and, and, even like the majority of the people that I work with are just women who crack me up so much. And I go, in what world is this not funny? So I think I'm in this maybe cushioned place where I'm like the community that I'm around and the things that I absorb, there's no question. And there is this ease. And um, what's interesting, I think, is, is, is doing comedy is looking at women in politics, because I do a lot of political satire and making fun or making fun of women in power because it is still quite a rarity and women do, and this is this is true, come up against, you know, misogyny. They come up against sexist ideals in power and people projecting onto them, you know, their values of what a woman can and cannot do. The role of the comedian obviously is to punch up and to make fun of people in power. Women are moving into positions of power, I think, at a higher rate, but there are still barriers to the same level of power that is afforded to men in those same positions. So to what extent can you skewer them and make fun of them and actually say what they're not just like, you know, perfect women who don't make mistakes. If you're in a position of power, you should be, you know, challenged and you should be criticized and you should be held to account. And just because you are a woman in that capacity doesn't mean you are exempt from, you know, a bit of ribbing where that ribbing actually plays into, you know, the misogynistic framework is another question. So that is the question that I struggle with every day as a female comedian, looking at how power manifests in power structures um, or in political structures. So that is still, I think, a bit of a question because we are in this really difficult place of, of empowerment and disempowerment in, in, entangled in, in the same in the same kind of situation. I don't have an answer for that. I just try to, you know, step back and think, you know, if this was a man, would I be saying this? Or why is this different if if it's a woman? Or like even like someone like Gladys Berejiklian's corruption scandal, if it were a man in, involved in a corruption scandal, I would make fun of it. She is a woman yeah. involved in a corruption scandal. She's being, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make fun of that. Where there's this really interesting media commentaries about the fact that, you know, it's almost patronizing to be like, well, she didn't know it was a guy. Like he, he was the one that did it. And it's like, well, can we give her some agency? But at the same time, you're like, but also there, I do see some credence in a lot of times you are moved by, you know, a partner that is doing something wrong and you feel less empowered to say something because you're a woman. So both things, and this is my thing that I've been saying all the time, you know, two things can be true. Yeah. So oh my good. God, that's so interesting. Yeah. So then what, I mean, you you touched on the fact that you do political satire. Have you always been into politics or did you have to learn a shitload about politics? Because I feel <laughs> like that would be hard. 
You know what? That is a great question. I think I like, you know, I debated in high school and I was always kind of interested in current affairs, but you really do see, especially in the Australian um, comedy landscape, political satire is an in very much towards working with people that you really admire and respect. And I think for me, I grew up watching The Chaser, not necessarily thinking it was political, but just thinking it was like so funny. And that for me was like my favorite show. Like I would like get excited for Wednesdays so I could watch, you know, The Chaser. So I think I was always very inspired by that kind of community of dudes, um, you know, being playful and fun and a little bit political, but mostly tongue in cheek and very silly. And I was like, that was really appealing to me. I think at uni, I was like somewhat intrigued by politics. And I think that I think I'd be very, I'm very involved and intrigued in politics from like a theoretical, like, you know, philosophy of governance and leadership capacity. The day-to-day stuff, I wish I didn't have to know. Yeah, the day-to-day oh Twitter threads, I wish I didn't have to like give a shit, but I, that's, I, I have to like every day wake up and see what's happening. And I wish that I didn't have to, that's the stuff that I'm like, political satire sucks. Cause you have to read the news all the time. I think it's the day-to-day pettiness. I'm like, the I pettiness. I was pettiness. just about yeah. to say, yeah. how do you deal? I mean, you obviously deal with it in a, you mm. spin it and make it funny, funny, and that's how you deal with it. But it's just the pettiness of some of the mm. crap that comes out is just yeah. like, oh, my God, I cannot believe this that, the, that, be these, that these yeah. people make mm. the rules. Like, yeah. you know. Oh, absolutely. And it's like the pettiness begets more pettiness. Like there's not mm-hmm. much you can really say that skewers pettiness without either amplifying it or kind of coming back with like a petty you know slap back there are some moments where you try to reframe or 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 shift the way that people see certain things happening just by showing how petty it is but i think a lot of times people do know how silly it is and i a lot of times you see these stories and you go yeah there's a really cheap easy joke here it is like a lot of these things are insane but i don't want to make a two-minute sketch about this because it's petty (laughs) yeah that's the hardest thing i think is just you know i like the big the big kind of concepts and the big things that happen and a lot of the human things that happen i think the thing that jenna and i do um the most together is finding the human or very personal ways that you know people and politicians interact with their policies and what's going on and i think even the first thing that we did was you know the leadership spill sketch the the schoolgirl sketch (laughs) where that was a very flawed and human um situation where people had the hubris to like try to usurp each other and it was just a scrabble for power um scrabble it was a struggle for power um and that was really easy to play because you just played the human aspect of what Mm. that is like from like you know a really young kind of lens and in the meantime you like speckle through their policies and stuff but everything else like that is really to serve a more human story and so we just try to find the human stories we ask ourselves what are people feeling about the news like it's like not even like what's happening in the news it's like how are people feeling about it how are everyday australians feeling about it and then who are the characters that play out that emotion it's like really trying to extract the um the personal the emotional the human from the political it's so interesting because I think it's so important at the moment because there is so much information and so many social issues at the moment that no one knows mm-hmm. how to actually take in the information and what to do with it. But you guys make Absolutely. it actually, even though it's satire, you make it palatable for people to kind of understand what's going on and have mm-hmm. some sort of formed opinions on it in a way. Mm, yeah. I mean, my favourite one was the contact Tracy's. Yeah, ridiculous. That's so good. Oh yeah, it's so funny, and I wonder what they're up to now with with the reopening. I wonder what what they're doing now. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny when you have, yeah, yeah, when you have characters like that that really resonate with people. The 
um, amount of like, you know, brands and companies that like want to, you know, jump in and it's, it's, you really have to think about like the, well, how to protect those characters from oversaturation. I even think that we did a second schoolgirl sketch and even then I was like, maybe we should have just kept it at one. Um, sometimes you just, you have to leave things as they are. Yeah. Um, that must be difficult sequel. though. If you really like, you know, if something's really successful and there, there are more, there are other things you could explore mm. within that. Mm. So how do you just leave that behind? Some of them. They write it down um, and delete the Google Yeah, delete, delete the folder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it really is a, just a, well, what else is there? I think we're excited about like what comes next um, and, and what else can you kind of create, um, which is, yeah, which is fun. I know Jenna and I are really interested because we do like our favorite thing is character comedy. We love characters. We love, um, you know, creating characters, writing characters, and that does fit a lot of times into more of a narrative um, structure. Like we're really interested in characters over time, how they change, how complexities can be drawn. And so I think we're at the moment really interested in the narrative space. I'm um, taking a lot of the stuff that we've learned from sketch and like developing characters that exist over time and what that looks like, because that is the next kind of step. Because I think we've had a big practice of like, you know, how do you create characters from political mess? And now we're like, how do you create characters from life? I think social satire is our sweet spot. We love like the people element. That's so good. And so you've just announced um, the war on 2021 tour. Oh my God. I am so excited how we can do this. Exciting. There was a time where they were like, we can't do this. <gasps> and I was like, oh my God, no. But now I'm like this, we were going, we're just doing New South Wales and Canberra yeah. because of COVID. We might be able to do Melbourne. Our like Perth and Adelaide legs have um, been postponed. But yeah, we are beyond excited. And it's really just the best show for us because like Mark Humphreys is there and he's oh so good. Gosh. And Charles and James who are from the, the Contact Tracy sketch and, you know, from the Chaser from the Shovel. Mm. It's like some of the most exciting minds in, in satire just having, we have the most fun. And that's like the main thing that I think people take away from the show is like we ourselves are having a lot of fun going through the year as it was, remembering things. What's so exciting is that, you know, the chaser and the shovel keep tabs of what's been happening throughout the years with all their headlines. And so you just have this back catalog of like, this is what happened this year. Are you kidding me? That was this year. I can't <laughs> believe we're at the end of the year. This year has been so crazy. And then when you actually like go, oh, that was the year that we've had, that's, mad how are we yes. still standing how did we survive it yeah. it's weird yeah. when you look at like because you when you i mean what it's october sitting here looking at it now it's like oh wow we're just like coming out the other end of that that was a bit fucked but yeah you're right when you see all those those headlines and when it has been documented so mm. specifically um it is weird to think that all that shit has happened mm. in the last 10 months like we're not yeah. even the year's not yeah. even out yet it's wild. Anything and the only way to deal with that is humour, I think. Yeah, is you're to, right. To actually be able to face it and be able to laugh at it. But there is something obviously cathartic and you're in the my favorite thing about like live performances everyone's in the room together and everyone's like laughing and it's everyone's experiencing that and going through that together but there is this collective kind of sigh at the end of the year when people are processing what we've all been through and having people and we've missed that people in the same space experiencing the same thing we've all just been so separate experiencing this thing there is something so beautiful about being at the theater being with groups of people being exposed to the same ideas and then coming out at the end of the show in the foyer and just taking a sigh and being like we've been through this together there is something so beautiful about that and that's why I am like beyond excited to to go on tour so where can people buy tickets 
Do a plug. I think on I think on like the Ticket Tech website you can like Great. look up War of on 2021 or go to like the Chaser website cool. and there'll be like War on 2021 tickets. We'll we'll there. find the links we'll and we'll put, put them in the yeah. show notes. Just want yeah. to let it get a plug yeah, in. Yeah, get a plug yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah, Love that. Plug in. No, yeah. it, will, it will be I really it will just be fun. And yeah. I, I think, oh man, I can't even tell you how excited I am just to have some have some freaking I'm fun. I'm excited. All right. So we're going to go into rapid fire. Love it. Take it away. Uh, what's your most irrational fear? Uh, oh, the failing. <laughs> heavy. <laughs> Sorry. That's heavy not irrational. One. Same. I was going to be like spiders. It's failing. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. Oh. Um, what is something surprising about you that we may not know? Um, probably that I really love um, smoothies. Like oh, I love same. smoothies. I have a morning smoothie every day and I love my smoothies. Yeah, I like literally got excited when I bought a new Nutribullet. Like I, re- yeah. I reckon I've had 10 Nutribullets because I just yeah. I burn them until they sit And I love Goodness. like micronutrients like lion's same. mane, like reishi. I'm into that. Oh, oh I'm a mushrooms girl too. Yeah, um, I'm a mushrooms girl. Yeah. I love yeah. mushrooms. It's so, I love yeah, it. Yeah, reishi is in every one of my smoothies. Yeah. 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 Uh, what's your walk-on song? Oh, Great question. I, um, oh my God, I literally, the first thing that came to my mind was Man Eater by Nelly. (laughs) (laughs) That's not even true. But for the, for the, this is when I walk on stage, it's Man Eater by Nelly Furtado. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Very fitting. I love it. (laughs) Um, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Um, be, be patient and kind with yourself. Nice. Perfect. Yeah, simple. Um, what was the first thing you did that you couldn't do post-lockdown? Oh, I went to Vinny's. I went to the <gasps> I'm, oh, I'm dying to do same. that. Oh, I'm about that. I love it. So who would you cast as yourself in a film about your life? Oh, my God. Um, that is such a great question. Um I reckon, I mean, she's had an absolute run of this stuff. I reckon Beanie. Oh, Oh, I love Beanie. Oh, she gets to be everyone's. She's Caitlin Moran's. She's um, Monica Lewinsky's and I would love for her to be mine. Yes. She she can have the whole world. She's a great you. Yes. Great casting. I love it. Yeah, she'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, I love her. I love Beanie. She seems so lovely. Yeah. Yeah. And Jonah Hill's sister. I know. They actually. Jonah Hill is my number one life. They Really? Jonah Hill, yeah, he's amazing. He's like lives by the beach, goes yeah. surf every yeah. day, he lives in walks a van, his dog big. Yeah. I've yeah, been he's got such a hippie life. Yeah. yeah, I've been reading about his um because he does transcend transcendental meditation, meditation. Oh, and I've been reading about his that. journey with that, and I'm like, wow, you are an incredible human. He's just like yeah. someone that's quite unassuming in that. Mm. In that role and what he's doing for, mm. um, you know, body image and stuff like that. Like, I just think oh, he's a freaking incredible human. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's so my great. he's my guy at the moment. Like, I love everything he does, the way that he, like, deals with the media about his body and the way that he, like, has transcendence meditation in his life and works on, like, he's at the moment directing this, like, documentary about his relationship with his therapist, which is so funny. Yeah. And he, he's, like, very kind of self-aware and funny about it. But he's also, you can just tell, like, he's a sweet, sensitive guy who I think is a brilliant mm. actor and an amazing comedian yeah. and he's also writing more and directing more and yeah I, I you know I just think he has a really beautiful life that mm. is grounded but also creative yeah so I'm Jonah and Beanie I love them I love that either mm. or could be you then 
Yeah. Yeah. I love them both. Yeah. Exactly. Perfect. Amazing. They've raised good humans, their parents. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well grounded. Yeah. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Vic, for joining us. This has been so fun. Oh, it's been so fun. Thank you so much for having me. I always love a chat. Yeah. yeah. We I can't mean, wait to see you soon that was in person. Yeah, I know. Wisdom. I know. Oh, well, so hopefully good. we can so see you in the chat. foyer. Yeah, in, in a foyer somewhere at a show. Oh, my God. At your no, show. At your own show. The dream. Yeah. The dream. <laughs> we'll be there. Second row, though, not first row. No, <laughs> never at a comedy show. <laughs> no, true. That's safe. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. The Source is recorded on Gadigal land. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we live, work and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. That's the end of the episode, so we hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to like, subscribe, follow and comment, share whatever you do um so tell your people people. yeah tell your people so other people can also benefit from the clusterfuck that is stefan out see you next time